welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us, and uh, we are at a special event here in Oregon City, Oregon, and uh, this is one of the stops on our Pacific Northwest tour, and we're glad to be with the folks at Reformation Covenant Church, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, something that they're getting off the ground here that really is both remarkable and encouraging, and we want to learn more about it, but like we uh, always do with the show, we'll start off with it, with introductions. My name is C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor on the other side of the river. You, you, you guys down here want to keep it weird? Up there, we say, keep it normal, man. Keep it normal. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I'm in Vancouver and around uh, uh, the southern side of the uh, Columbia River tonight. And uh, I've written a few books, and I've got a new book coming out on Tom Bombadil. It's uh, already available for pre-order, but enough about me. So why don't we go to you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor, ministry associate with Reflections Ministries, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and a couple of other things. All right. Now, Tom. Hello, Tom Price. I'm a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, and I teach philosophy at well. One of the plays is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and I'm writing a current book on theology, ethics, and technology. All right, good stuff. So anyway, uh, folks who've listened in on the podcast know that in our past, we've always, you know, recorded shows in environments like this. Pubs, football games, <laughs> that kind of thing. So we're surrounded by folks who are enjoying food at this remarkable event, Reformation Day uh, 2021. And we've got folks uh, who have arrived wearing medieval costumes or, you know, uh, kind of renaissance. Kind yeah, of, it's a combination kind of, of uh, renaissance, and then you see some interesting costumes, almost like being in a Bosch painting. <laughs> that's, right, that's, right. that's right. And the pastor, the, uh, the pastor sitting across from me, he's he's gone way back to the uh, the American West. <laughs> so it's great to great to see Bo here with us. But anyway, why don't why don't we spend a little time le- uh, kind of uh, learning a little bit about. Uh, you guys, so introduce yourselves to us, and then maybe uh, talk with us a little bit about the subjects that you'd like to address while we're while we're talking. And we always kind of just make it up as we go, so there's like no script. It's just like whatever we whatever sort of tangent we want to we want to go on, we do. And if we go too far off subject, wave us down, <laughs> and we'll try to bring it back in. But anyway, tell us about yourselves, about the church, and about the things you would like to talk about tonight. Uh, my name is Bo Cogbill. I'm the pastor here at Reformation Covenant Church in Oregon City. I've been here, uh, I guess, since January of 2019, and it's wonderful. Uh, lovely group of folks and glad to be here. Good place to raise your family, and uh, the Lord has been very gracious to our work here. Um, my name is Brian Nolder, and I am a uh, minister in the Community of Reformed Evangelical Churches, and I am new to this area and helping Bo get started with a new uh, training institute for ministers and those interested in advanced theological study called Reformation Bible Institute. Okay, let's let's focus in on Reformation Bible Institute a little bit because that's something that's kind of in our wheelhouse. You know, we've all been involved with education at the uh, you know at the secondary level and beyond. And uh, thank you for the food. <laughs> and uh, so, tell us a little bit about you know, the vision for Reformation Bible Institute, RBI. And Bo, I know you've got a background in baseball. So there's been a connection here by, with RBI. Hey, we got, we got to resolve the question or resolve the debate. So when a, a player has more than one run batted in, yes. is it RBI 
or RBIs? Uh, runs batted in. It is RBI. That's what I thought. You, yes. You're on my side. Yes, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the name actually, we were just kicking around a few different names uh, to name it, and our associate pastor threw out RBI, and it, it just was sort of a placeholder for a while, and then we did so much work, uh, it was just too much work to go back and rename it or redo anything, <laughs> so it just kind of stuck. Well, but. it's a good name, and I like baseball. You know, I'm from New England, so I'm a Red Sox fan, of course. And uh, anyway, we've got uh, the evil Astros playing the noble Braves in the World yes. Series right now. So we're, we, we, uh, we, don't, we don't shy away from making known that our teams. So if you're from Houston and you just took offense, too bad. <laughs> anyway, so uh, tell us a little bit about uh, RBI. Yeah, so it, a lot of it actually came about, um, you know, it's been something that I've thought about really since I was in seminary. Um, didn't grow up in the church, grew up uh, kind of in a blue-collar area. Um, excellent, excellent. Yes, cheers. Um, and like you said, because I could hit a baseball and throw a baseball, I was actually able to go to college. Um, pretty quickly found myself around a lot of folks totally not like me. Um, it was very obvious who uh, were college types and who weren't. Um, then became a Christian um, and then became reformed and went to a reformed seminary. So went from blue collar to probably as white collar as it gets. <laughs> we want to change that. We're working on yeah, it. Yeah, we're, we're working, working on, on it. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that you know that's part of part of the background is you know my first seminary class was with Dr. Ferguson, and um, he said that the seminary existed in the way that it does because the church has really failed to do its job of raising up ministers, and that kind of stuck with me. Um, felt like an outsider really the whole time uh, during seminary, uh, and then came out and did ministry for a while in a blue-collar area, and, you know, the, the denomination that I was in at the time uh, did a lot of talk about wanting to reach people, wanting to practice social justice. Um, yeah, it, for some reason, it never gets around to the blue-collar, does it? Yeah, that was kind of the, t as someone who grew up, I was pretty frustrated with that kind of talking. I mean, I appreciate the sentiment. Um, but I think it's a, it but would, a sentiment never seems to be directed at the blue collar. It was, it was to me felt separated from reality. Um, and it, again, I, I'm really thankful. I think that they're trying, trying to do the best they can with what they have. You're giving them a lot of credit. Well, they're my brothers, you know, I love them. I, I sure, really sure. am thankful for them. I think, um, but I, I do think that, that maybe there is a, a misunderstanding between where the gap lies. Um, my experience was I was closer to people of different races uh, that were in my socioeconomic status Bingo. than those who weren't. <laughs> That's you right, know. right, yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the work that they were doing, as, as noble as it might be, I don't think was ever going to penetrate the places that they say they wanted to penetrate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, really wasn't a whole ton I could do about it at the time. Fast forward several years and the Lord was gracious to call us up to RCC um, around a bunch of good, honest, hardworking folks and um, throwing everything together around a retreat came up with really what was meant to be um, an officer training program uh, to provide a rigorous theological education, um, but not a lot of cost. You know, I, I know that uh, seven years and $100,000 is, right. is not quite accessible for a ton of folks. And it means that when you come out of school, there are only certain churches that can afford your debt. Yes, yes, exactly. And I served actually with two guys who um, 
the Lord was quite gracious. And, and even in my own experience, um, there, were, there were some things that happened to where the Lord provided in ways that weren't natural. Um, and so kind of putting all that together, when I had started seminary, I figured, well, I'm going to save everything. Uh, I'm going to save every book. I'm going to save every syllabus. Um, I was at Westminster Seminary in Dallas. Um, so it had the rigor. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe one day, Lord willing, I'll serve at a church and there will be a guy that can't afford seminary. And so I can at least walk him through the type of education that I had. Um, and if he's working full time and he's got the, uh, the uh, fortitude uh, to do it, uh, then maybe, maybe he'll have what it takes to be cut out for ministry. Um, and so that's kind of where all of this, this is sort of brewing and percolating over the years and um, presented it this year to the CREC in hopes of, you know, trying to raise up some guys that are more blue collar. Maybe they became Christians later in life. Maybe, you know, like the guys I grew up around, you didn't think about college. You right. know, maybe you go to the military, maybe you work for the right. city. Right. Um, you pretty much stay local, but college is really off your radar. And if college is off your radar, well, then Reformed theology is off your radar. And right. then Reformed right. ministry is off your radar. And so right. um, I think if we want to penetrate those blue-collar areas, I don't want to lower the bar. You know, that was one of the things that was really frustrating to me is it's like, well, let's swap pulpits, give this church 10 grand, and then call it a day. Uh, but... I don't think that's actually going to penetrate what we want it to do. Right. So. Yeah, if I can jump in here, I'm one of those guys who grew up in an environment where going to college was just what you, you did. Yeah. And when I was in junior high, I knew I was going to get a PhD. It's as simple as that. Yeah. You know, so I'm in a really different world than you are. But as a historian, I can tell you, that what you are doing is reinventing the way ministerial training was done from the days of the Reformation, really practically to, to the 19th century. Wow. Um, Jonathan, the church I attended when I was in Connecticut was the one Jonathan Edwards went to when he was at Yale. Okay, but now that now Yale in those days was not the Yale we know now. That, that's in right. In every <laughs> way, it was different. But the way Jonathan Edwards got his training is he went to our church and the minister in our church taught him. That was the way it was done. Yeah. It, it was almost literally an apprenticeship program. Yeah. And so what you're talking about is something very, very much like the way many of the great theologians and ministers over the centuries were trained. Well, and I... I mean, I think that blue-collar guys, it's not that they don't have the brains. Of course not. Um, and I think in some ways, there's some things that qualify the blue-collar guy for ministry uh, that sometimes the white-collar guy hasn't had the chance to develop those kinds of calluses, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, if, if I may interrupt yeah, again. Yeah, When I was in college, I was thinking I would go on to seminary. Mm -hmm. And the pastor of my church told me, that is a mistake. He says, think about it. Suppose you go to seminary and your first church is in western Pennsylvania. And your first day... Western Pennsylvania. Western Pennsylvania. That's where I'm from. Oh, and, wow. and your first day in the office, an out-of-work steel worker with marital problems comes to you. Mm. You have been in school all your life. You have never had any kind of experience outside of it. What are you going to say to him? Right. And that was the thing that convinced me not to go to seminary right away. Yeah, yeah. And an uh, interesting point from a different direction is, is um, I, I think Glenn was right on the money with the fact that 
the integration of theological education with the church needs to much more intimate than the way seminary does it um, today. I mean, they have their connections and their ways of getting the money and those kind of things, but it is really detached from the experience of the church. And, and this is another connection. When the church is involved in the theological education, the training of ministers, they are going to be trained in the kind of atmosphere that they're in. I mean, I'm at the CUME campus in Boston for Gordon Conwell, and they're training urban ministers. It's very differently done than they do the Hamilton campus. But the only reason that difference kind of is educational and informative is because the churches are very much more actively involved with the seminary education and the shape of the curriculum versus the, the Hamilton campus, which, which is very different. Yeah. And you lived up there. and you. you oh, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, Bo, I'd like to dig into this, this uh, statement you said or some, some uh, uh, reality that you alluded to with regard to calluses. I don't know if a lot of our, our, our lower or sort of upper uh, middle-class white-collar guys have ever had a callus, if you, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Except maybe one they got at the gym, you know, sure, because sure. <laughs> they're paying extra money to actually work their body because right, they've never right. had to do any work. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Out, outside. So I was a framer for a while. I worked my way through seminary. Yeah. So the uh, the reality is is that blue-collar guys will not respect a guy who spends all of his time in books. Sure. It just won't happen. Sure. Because they, they really do believe there's a dimension to to life that they are uh, acquainted with and have they don't think that the... You know the, the the pastor who's never experienced that has any acquaintance with. So sure. they're just like, you know, this guy. I don't have anything to learn from this guy. Yeah. You know that. You know he doesn't know anything about the world I'm in. Yeah. So so talk a little bit about how maybe RBI. I love that RBI. <laughs> how RBI will be able be able to address that problem? Yeah. I mean, I was essentially raised to not trust two people and those were rich people and people with college degrees um, so now i think that's still good advice that's right, that's, right, that's, right, that's right america would be in a lot better place if there were more people like you yeah and i mean i i think that was our own you know sense of of pride sure you know well, you should, um, see that's the thing i think that's that's been lost but we could talk about that sure. another time right yeah you know but i mean my dad came home smelling like creosote because he claimed telephone poles and uh, you know, by all accounts, he had the brains to do it, but he didn't have that piece of paper. Um, so he worked 60, 70 hour weeks because that's what he had to do. You know, um, I think pastoral ministry, I think if a guy thinks he's going to come into pastoral ministry and, you know, work 40 hour weeks or 50 hour weeks and nine to five, I, it's it's not going to happen. Well, you, you know uh, how, you know, blue collar guys say, you know, you know, that was a great service to a pastor. Yeah. And I was like, hey, it must be great to be able to only work eight hours that's a week. Right, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I always like when the guy asks me, so so what do you do the rest of the week, you know? There's, right. an, there's an old joke. Uh, six, what is it? Uh, six days invisible, one day incomprehensible. So. <laughs> that's how we're like God. We're like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I know that I've, Again, I think that there's many blessings. I hope my kids grow up and don't don't have to go through some of the things that my parents went through and their parents went through. I think it's a great blessing and, and covenant faithfulness and blessing that comes with that is, is a real thing. Um, and yet I also think that there is an element to pastoral ministry where um, if it's hard and if you're exhausted, 
that's life. You know, I, I, I think pastoral burnout maybe um, is because the expectations are maybe not what they should be. Um, you know, I've talked with guys, they have college degrees and, you know, maybe they're having a hard time making ends meet and you bring up the idea of a second job and they look at you like you have a third eye. That's right. Uh, <laughs> everybody I grew up with had two jobs, you know. Right. And again, I'm not saying one's better than the other. I, I want us to be able to allow what we believe to be the best manifestation of the gospel uh, to penetrate every demographic. And we think RBI might provide an avenue into that world because it is for the guy who's maybe working full-time already. It's going to kick his butt, but he's used to having his butt kicked because that's his life. Um, And so, you know, I went to seminary with some guys that went to high school and to college and then to seminary and the skies opened and they heard the voice of God telling them they're going to ministry. So they spend $70,000 and two years in a destroyed church and marriage later, they're out of the ministry. And so who was wrong in that scenario? Right. I think maybe if we had it being done in the context of the church, if the guy was working his tail off and serving, maybe he could save a lot of money and a lot of pain for folks if he approached it that way. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the program. So I looked, a li- uh, you know, I, I've seen a few things that you guys have printed that describe it. You dive right into the original languages in, in year one and so forth, but how, do, how does it proceed from there? Yeah, so kind of the thinking behind it is, you know, we live in a time that's so divorced from history, um, church history, but also biblical history. I, I think the assumption uh, that the New Testament if you can't show it to me from the New Testament, it doesn't count. Um, I think that's probably a, too prevalent in the church. And so we figured, well, um, let's just dive into the beginning. Uh, let's give these folks uh, an introduction. Let's teach them Hebrew. And then let's walk chronologically through the scriptures um, and then teach them Greek and walk chronologically through the New Testament and then walk chronologically through church history, dealing with systematic theologies as they come up in their historical context so that when we bring all that together, there's a rootedness to it uh, that you don't get whenever you're sort of piecemealing parts here and there. I think rooting people in the history of God from creation, which again, that's one of the, I think, things that's unique about RBI is we, we do hold a young earth position, which in seminaries, that's not exactly what you're going to get. I think you go to seminary, maybe if you believe in young earth going to seminary, uh, you don't when you get out and it takes you five or six more years to get unseminaried before you come back and try to deal with it. So uh, so start there and then move our way forward because that's how God has worked. Right. Yeah, let me jump in here. Um, we're, we're meeting here on Reformation Day and, you know, one of the, one of the great advances or blessings of the Reformation was to say, you know, we're not just going to use a Bible in translation, particularly one in Latin that the people can't understand. You know, Luther said, no, I'm going to provide a German Bible for the German people. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at the original languages. Of course, there was the blessing of the printing press. There was the blessing of Erasmus working on the Greek New Testament and putting it together so that Luther could do that at just the right time. And it's, you know, it's amazing to think of the impact that Luther's Bible has had on German. It kind of froze the German language and the impact that the King James Bible had on the English language and kind of giving us a, a, a lingo to speak to one another in. Um, you know, most of us here are Presbyterians. There's an interesting statement at the beginning of the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, being immediately inspired by God and by a singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. Now, you know, that, so we've got controversies we're facing. We've got controversies about homosexuality. So you've got people saying, well, this word doesn't mean that. Well, maybe they should go back and look at that word and say, you know, it really does condemn these behaviors. It really does condemn this identity. So you've got to have men trained in these languages. Now, again, we're not Muslims. We're not saying that you don't understand the Bible if it's not in English. We're so blessed to have such good English translations. But you've got to have leaders dealing with controversies, controversies about sexuality, controversies about creation. And if they don't have access to the original languages, they're not going to be able to engage effectively in those controversies. So that's one of the reasons why we're trying to help guys who maybe have never been able to go to seminary put some time and money aside so that they can really get some access. Maybe they won't become PhDs in languages, but at least they'll be able to follow debates. They'll be able to follow commentaries. They'll be able to get some access to these languages so that they can more fully participate in the controversies that we're facing today. You know, one of the things that, of course, um, we know regarding, you know, great luminaries in the history of the church is they could do other things. The Apostle Paul, you know, was able to say, you don't need to pay me, you know. In fact, I don't want you to pay me. I make good income making tents, right? I can, when you think about it, it's like the ideal, it's like the, the ideal trade for a guy on the road. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, you, you go to a, you go to a tent. He'd have a lot know, of business around here, oh, but he might not get paid for it. <laughs> That's what we need, Tate Maker Ministry in Portland. Would he take money from the government? That's the question. We'd have to, we'd have to ask him. Yeah. But anyway, that's great. That's, that's golden. That's golden. We need Tent Maker Ministry in Portland, Oregon. These people's tent, their tents are just awful. But um, you know what I'm getting at. You know, you, you go to it, you, you arrive in Ephesus. You, you, there's probably right outside the city a place for people who are on the road to set up their tents who come to town and they're going to be around for a few days and they're going to be on the road so here's here's paul opens up his tent sets at the table puts the tents on the table i'm open for business yeah <laughs> i i my tent just has a big hole in it just that, that storm last night completely ripped it open i need a tent you know that kind of thing yeah. i can repair that i can give you i can sell you a tent and there's another thing do you think the Apostle Paul was a good haggler? Oh, yeah. You see, that's the thing. You know, I, I, I run across all these Christians who just want to pay, like, sticker price. They, they're really uncomfortable with haggling. <laughs> because they just, they, they just say, I, I just want to pay what they tell me to pay, right? Yeah, it's all about, you know, honesty and transparency and love, right? Yeah, Apostle Paul, I imagine, said... I'll give you five bucks. <laughs> he was and, a shrewd manager. Yeah, I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. But you, know, you think about, you know, obviously Peter, right? You know, even think about like Augustine. You know, he was a guy who had a living before he went. In, you know, before he was converted and 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 became a bishop. He was like the guy who maybe coined the term. No, I don't want to be the bishop. Yeah. <laughs> and has made the bishop. Yeah. That's kind of. That should be kind of like a, on the, uh, you know, sort of like. One of the screening, you know, do you really want to be a pastor? No, you get you, the job. Yeah, that's <laughs> because that tells you, like, you know what this is about. You know, this is a lot of pain, a lot of disappointment, a lot of that kind of stuff. So anyway, 
But getting back to this idea of being able to do other stuff, I actually think being able to do other stuff makes you a better pastor. I agree, yeah. Not just because you have something to fall back on. Right. Think about it. When you do have something to fall back on, do you think maybe it's easier for you to take the unpopular stand? Yeah, that's right. If, if this is all you know how to do, right? you know, you, you, you squirm and you sort of try to make it happen and make it work and try to make everybody happy all the time because you're afraid of losing your job. Yeah. You know, so there's that dimension, but there's also the dimension that you can relate to people. Everybody looks at you and says, that guy doesn't need this job. Right. He could do something else. Right. You know, why do you have this job? <laughs> you must really want to help people or That's something. Right, yeah. Yeah. So any, I actually think what you're, trying, what you're attempting to do, so we have this professional model of the ministry, which is like we want ministers to have the same sort of social status as doctors and lawyers and stuff, right? But maybe uh, that's an entirely wrong way of thinking about it. Maybe what makes a good minister is what we were talking about, being able to do other stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of things on that. I think it's interesting that it's not as though Paul didn't have any training, right? He was pretty oh, he was. well educated. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that allows, if a guy is well educated, I think it allows him some bandwidth that the guy who isn't well educated and is trying to be bivocational just doesn't have. Yeah. Right? Because I, I'm so thankful for the time at Westminster because there's been times where I may or may not have had time to show up prepared for something and was able to draw on a deeper well than if I had to just sort of wing it or stay up until three in the morning doing both. And so I, I think that there's something to be said for well, being trained. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for bandwidth. Yes. So I can relate to the PhD and the framer. Yeah. I can relate That's to both right. those guys. Yeah, yeah. Had yeah, I remember in, when I was doing my MDiv in seminary, <clears throat> I went to Southeastern at the time, I was in that world. Um, it, but it was right after kind of the kicking out of the kind of detached academic liberals and, mm. and, and a return to biblical language. First degree came in with the biblical languages, foundational, a lot of philo philosophical training, but church history, all, all those core things. And one of the things I did admire about that change is they took theology seriously. So many of these degree programs, and, and they're the same way at the where I teach, they spend so much time with classes about organizational behavior, <laughs> um, you know, dynamic interaction with your congregants on a psychological level, you know, these kind of classes. And, and you, they, have, they have reduced three systematic three theology classes for an MDiv students down to survey one and two. Yeah. You don't get theology in a survey. Now, they, they'll give some, you know, a couple more biblical classes and, and they, they're the languages. So theological education should largely be theological education. Divinity school should be studying divine things. That's right. That, Masters of Divinity. Well, yeah, that's right. And then the second point was what I remember the uh, president of seminary saying one time, they had a lot of uh, blue-collar kids. I was one of them myself. My dad, my dad was heating and air conditioning guy, you know, worked his tail off and came, you know, 90 hours a week, came in. But you know, the funny thing about him, he'd go to church with us on Sunday, but he'd be doing a crossword during the sermon. I, I won't get into that story. Um, but that was his, that was his, his downtime. Um, but one of the things I remember the president saying is, look, you need to come here and learn because you don't only want to be able to speak to the idiots in your congregation. He didn't mean by that blue-collar people are idiots. What he was saying is there are some that just are never going to push it, but you still need to be able to relate to them. 
But if you're going to speak into different worlds, you need to be able to, and that's, I think, what you're talking about with St. Paul. He was somebody who could, he could deal with the guy who's putting together the tent and working all day, but on the other hand, he could go debate with the rabbis and the philosophers and, and, and any of those. Yeah, so Tom, if I could just pick up on what you're saying. So right now, because, of, um, because I didn't get here until recently, we've decided to take our last year of counseling and kind of stick it in the front year. And what's so interesting about what Bo's doing in the counseling program is, well, first of all, it's, it's you know, we believe the scriptures are you know, more than sufficient to address issues of sin. And so, you know, we're not, so, so it's a very strong biblical counseling program. But in addition to that, when he's uh, doing our meetings on Wednesday evenings to fill in the gaps, a lot of it is theology. You know, you've got yeah. to, you, have a, you have to have a good doctrine of Christ. You have to have a good doctrine of God. You have to have a good doctrine of man so that you can really help, you know, see where people are at. Yeah. Because again, you've got all these voices out there in secular psychology. Yeah. You've got all these voices out there that are offering a different way to think and teaching Christians not to think Christianly about well, themselves. That's right. they're, in, they're importing all those different conceptions of what it means to be a human, sin, different conceptions of every Everything are being imported in those. I'm somebody, I, I, you know, I've kind of got my core passions, but I'm somebody who thinks really that the, the therapeutic and the counseling in terms of the church needs to go redefine itself again in light of care of souls. That's what yes, it used to that's be. That's right. Soul Booster, care. Martin Bootsu. That's right. And yeah. what you're dealing with is is theological approach to it, not, ju not just kind of a biblical worldview, but actually addressing these roots down to, to where identity and sin are lodged in and the spiritual dimensions. Well, and pastorally, I mean, that's where you actually see healing. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how many people I have had to uncounsel before yeah. I could counsel, yeah. you know, because they had been so wrapped up in the psychology and the different category that sin doesn't exist. Yeah. These are things that have happened to me. And yeah. therefore yeah. I have to do this. Or I had a guy in my integrationist, uh, in my office the other day and said, um, XYZ causes the addict to relapse. And this is a Christian. <laughs> what do I do with my people if they, are if they are filled with this idea that something else, something external to me, causes me to then therefore go into this addiction? There is, the gospel doesn't have hope in that situation. Yeah. But if, as James says, I sin, well, because I want to, yeah, yeah. that's actually good news. Yeah, because right. I don't have to. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the the bad news, of course, is that you want to. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, but, well, that's the good the, news is that you, you don't want have to. to. That's right. You <laughs> yeah. don't have to. But that also means that it's in the realm of your agency. It's yes. something that you are choosing. Yes, and you can you can actually define it. Right. There's all of these terms out there of what's wrong with us, but those aren't actual things. Yeah. You know, if somebody has sinned against us in a certain way, uh, the gospel actually allows us to have an atonement to then forgive and reconcile and not masochistically gash ourselves over and over and over again. Well, you know, you know when Jesus, uh, you know, said, said some hard things for his followers to hear, many of them, have, you know, abandoned him. And he turned to his 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 inner his inner circle and he said, "Are you guys going to leave me too? Yeah, yeah. Where else and are we going to go? Where are we going to go?" That's so right. now this is the thing that I think that particularly people who grow up in Christian homes can be very naive about. Yes, and that yes. is they they really do think that other people out there have an answer. That's right. 
And what, what you discover when you actually get out there is they're clueless. Yeah. And that, that the things that they think work or say work are not working yeah. at all. And that these people are just kind of playing games, you know. Well, and it causes more damage, yeah. right? Because they're they're essentially chasing their tails. Right. Uh, there is no healing apart from that which is found in Christ. And so um, that's one of our passions is biblical counseling. Let's return. What is the... Okay, so we've got this term trauma. What does that mean? You know, you've got this term abuse. What does that mean? Right. You've got right. this term addiction. What does that... You know, like... We have to know what these words mean if we're going to have hope for anybody to move beyond those words and to have healing. And I think for us, um, I'm so thankful for our Baptist brothers and sisters that have sort of led the way in the biblical counseling world. Um, but because of their ecclesiology, it tends to be divorced from the local church. And one of our passions at RBI is to bring counseling or the care of souls yeah. back into the context of the local church because that's the institution God has set up in order for people to find healing for all of these different things. And so, you know, reminding people that this is about your union with Christ. This is about your participation in his body. Um, those types of things are, I think, relatively unique, even in the biblical counseling and, world. And it, it's interesting because uh, Freud, for example, uh, no, no small stranger to the counseling and therapeutic yeah. world, he understood himself as trying to mimic the church. Yes. He called himself the secular priest. Yes, right. I mean, so he was yeah. trying to, you know, the confessional and all this. He, so he that's was right. imminentizing. He was, he was trying to give a, um, a so whole... Isn't, uh, that, isn't that weird? So he was pretending to be like us, and now we pretend to be <laughs> like, be like them. them. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, I guess, the, 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 the laugh he, he, he kind of keeps... I hear someone laughing right at that moment. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Someone's dressed as Freud over there. <laughs> 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 so anyway, as uh, podcast listeners may have heard, uh, there is a marvelous event that's occurring around us. People are actually fellowshipping and eating and doing the things you want them to do at a church event. But we're here, and uh, we're getting ready to kind of transition to uh, another part of the evening's sort of schedule, and that's going to be a, a something that features Glenn. He's going to be talking about his book, Slaying Leviathan. Now, before we kind of say goodbye to this particular subject and move over to what happens next, is there anything that you want to share about RBI that maybe you haven't had a chance to, to talk about yet? Well, I, I did want to say something about um, the importance of church history. Yeah. Um, I think what Thank we... Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Um, it's overrated. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm only a, kidding. This is an, an internecine conflict. <laughs> no, it is, it is necessary. Absolutely. pistols. <laughs> One of the reasons, so when all of this COVID stuff happened, was it eight, nine, ten years ago now? Yeah, I remember before the before the days when we all were locked BC. up in prison, you know, yeah, and yeah. put in camps was for just not a few being years vaccinated. Just a few years after the Reformation, <laughs> right? Yeah. So our our conviction, I mean, bubonic plague or not, um, our conviction was the minister's place is word and sacrament, and so it was actually above our pay grade even to shut these doors. And so from the very beginning, because of church history, because of our high view of the scriptures, because of our high view of the word and sacrament, um, I think we were able to maybe stand in a place where a lot of our brothers and sisters gave way. Um, we did a series on how 
uh, you know, Luther has the Babylonian captivity of the church. We did a series on the Gnostic captivity of the church. Yeah, yeah. Um, because in our view, um, if, if God's people needed word and sacrament, what better time to give them word and sacrament yeah, than during yeah. a crisis? And right. so, um, again, one of the things that I think sets RBI apart... Now, now you guys weren't doing virtual sacraments? We did not do virtual <laughs> sacraments, yeah, no. That was a thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Supposedly, yes. Allegedly. Allegedly. How, how you know, Gnostic can you get? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually saw video of, I think it was Anglican priests Man. baptizing babies with super soakers. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Well, there must have been a lot of them, right? It's like the modern hyssop branch. <laughs> but yeah, so that, you know, a high view of the sacraments, a high view of the Lord's Day, covenant renewal worship, a lot of the distinctives that we have that that we think will sustain us through this time that really is divorced from history, divorced from scriptures, divorced from the ordinary means of grace. Those are all things that we think God has instituted for our good, um, and it would be to our detriment to neglect them. So. Yeah, we, you've been, we live in really weird times. Yeah. We had a president who, uh, whose life, you know, sort of his behavior would uh, belie any Christian confession. But he said that uh, worship, Christian worship is essential. And we had church leaders through their instructions, through their policies, who, who, who apparently didn't think so. Right. It was a weird thing to, uh, to, uh, you know, to witness. Well, and you would, you would wonder if those who are dividing the church now over uh, other issues yeah. related to this need to read 1 Corinthians 11 or perhaps Galatians. I don't know. Yeah, right, right. Maybe the Bible. Maybe, Maybe the Bible, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if I may throw in one thing that we haven't talked a lot about, one of the things that I think is really good about the way this is structured is you're keeping people in the local church. That's right. Um, and this is really kind of where I started. Theological education has always been, historically, had always been done in the church with the pastor and so on. Now, you don't have the pastor teaching them Greek and Hebrew, but you still have them involved in the church. Right. And it, you're not pulling them away. It's interesting that in the places where, where Christianity is growing the fastest right now, they don't have seminaries. Right, right. What happens in, in Sierra Leone, my son-in-law, future son-in-law, is a pastor in Sierra Leone. And in his organization, you don't become a pastor until you've planted four churches. Wow. That is, at that point, they say, okay, you're a leader. Here's the training you need. Wow. Okay. So the, the point being that the training works best when it is done in the context of active ministry. And what I'm hearing you saying with your, your entire model here is... Yeah, you know, we want them at their jobs. Right. We want them studying. We want them learning Greek and Hebrew and church history and all of the, these kinds of things. But we also want them in their church working. Yeah. And I think that's fabulous. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. We, uh, I know, so I had the privilege of being able to work and do ministry at the same time. And I think that has helped me pastorally in that when a guy's working 50, 60, 70-hour weeks, you don't give him grief because he didn't show up at the Calvin book study on Saturday morning. <laughs> um, I think it was able to give me some mercy and some insight uh, that if you go straight from high school, college, seminary, pulpit, you expect everybody's an egghead, but they might, as much as they might want to be an egghead, they got to work. 
you know, and so by these guys being able to work and do ministry and study, hopefully will exhaust them and maybe even scare a few off. I, I imagine this will be too hard for a lot of guys, and we'll be thankful for that. Another point I think often that gets overlooked is it's also great for the instructor, the professor, the teacher. Here's why. I do this. Glenn does this. Chris has done it. The temptation, because you do invest so much and you do need to eat, and you, if you're going to do academic work, it does require a certain kind of solitude that you can't always go out and do everything and do that kind of work if you're, gonna, if you're going to be engaging the, the rigor of the ideas that are out there. But by making the theologian or the teacher, the instructor, have to basically do it the world's way, go get a job at university, do this, rather than be integrated in the church, yeah. serving the church, check it out. You can, old doctor of the church for that matter, they, they I mean, you would have oftentimes, think of Jerome, right? There were ladies in the church who had the money to invest to allow Jerome to do the translation of the Bible into the, you know, out of, out of the Greek into, into the Latin at this point. And so you had that stuff funded, but it was connected to the church. But the last point is it, it, it allows the professor not to, not to be in a situation where they make compromises because they tried to get work. Right. It's one of the big things. So many people get caught up in having to teach in positions they don't want to because right. they need to. And so, yeah, I think re-envisioning re this and connecting it to the church the way it should be is good for, for everyone involved. Yeah, and I, you know, the first church that I was at there were several men that were wanting to be trained up for the ministry, and the elders required all of those men to be on the setup team. Because from their view, if you don't want to be on the setup team, you don't want to do ministry. Um, and I think being able to watch a guy, if he's not willing to pick up a chair, he doesn't deserve to be in the pulpit. So I think keeping guys in the church yeah, is really important. that's a great approach. That's a great approach. So I just wanted to put a few of the essentials in here. Uh, yeah, thank please. you. First of all, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Uh, the website is rbioc.org, Reformation Bibles Institute, Oregon City.org. We call our program uh, Faithful, Practical, and Affordable. You can do a whole MDiv for less than $12,000. So we're not trying to get rich here. We're trying to serve the church. Um, we, we need you to contact us about being a student but maybe we got to get Dr. Sunshine to do one of our classes. Maybe we need to get Tom here to do one of our classes for Absolutely. us to help us. Uh, so we need your help. We need your prayers. Uh, we think we've got a good thing going here. Uh, we're recording this in the fall of 21. If you're a pastor who wants to refresh your Hebrew, join us next fall in the fall of 22 as we dig into the Hebrew Bible, as we dig into Old Testament classes. Maybe your Hebrew's gotten rusty because uh, you haven't been using it for 15 years. So please join us next fall. We'd love to have you and help you in your ministry. That's great. That's a great way to wrap it up. I think uh, we're getting ready to make a transition here. People are making their way up to the sanctuary. But uh, that's a good good way to, to, to end it. I think, uh, you know, what I hear, heard at the very end is that we need a new mo sort of model, not only in terms of the education that uh, ministers are, are being uh, given within a framework like, a, like you have here at RBI, but we need to rethink how our scholars do their work and where they do their work. And maybe that means that 
you know, we, we have many institutions like this around the country, and a person like Tom or a person like Glenn is on the circuit. Yeah. You know, just going from school to school to school, doing what they do best at that place and then moving on, that kind of thing. And then the, the ministerial formation is overseen by a pastor who's, you know, in the pulpit every week. You know, yeah, yeah so that would make a great, great, uh, I think, uh, approach. And it fits with our eschatology, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, we should wrap it up here because uh, we need to move on to other things. But thank you very much for listening to the Theology Podcast, this special show featuring RBI here in Oregon City, Oregon. And uh, uh, please check out the website that uh, Brian mentioned. It's rbioc.org. And then you can email them at info at rbioc.org. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now.